All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of Hebrews. We finished chapter 5 last week, and maybe we stuck our nose into chapter 6, but that's where we'll pick up, and of course, chapter 6 being one of the more difficult slash controversial uh, passages or sections in Hebrews. So we're going to take a look at that. But before we do, let's have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well again we can tell that the pastoral circumstances are such that the author is writing to to uh, Jewish converts to Christianity, don't apostatize. Even if persecution comes, don't turn back to Judaism. In so doing, um, you're turning from the superior back to the inferior. And that's really been his argument heretofore. Now, he's focused on Christ as um, high priest and as king and those two together. So we've seen a lot of that going on too in terms of his positive theology that he's setting forth. But of course it's over and against, um, you know, you don't really have a kingship going on or any, anything like that um, at present in the first century. But what you do have is a priesthood going on and a temple going on. So Christ is superior to all of this. His covenant is superior. He's the superior high priest, etc. And now we're going to talk um, about the pastoral problem specifically here, um, as we talk about the nature of apostasy, and what it is that the author of Hebrews both says and does not say. Important. All right, so as we looked at the end of chapter 5 last week, or two weeks ago rather, um, we have this warning against apostasy having begun, and of course, just at verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So we have some pastoral chastisement here on the part of the author. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So you should be teachers, you've got to go back to elementary school. You need milk, not solid food. You've regressed. You can't handle solid food, you're babies. You need milk, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. I like that as a phrase. I know he's chastising his people here, and he's doing so because he doesn't want them to apostatize. He doesn't want them to think they're experts and more than they are. Essentially, he's saying, you know, humble yourself, that you don't end up in your pride and arrogance turning your back on Christ, who is superior. But I do love this phrase, uh, the, I, the concept of being skilled in the word of righteousness. Because it kind of t- taps into, you know, the way that theology is, yeah, there are, there are hard science aspects to it. There is language and grammar and historicity and dogmatics. And, um, but it's also, it's also a kind of uh, art to it and a way that you show yourself either skilled or unskilled in terms of handling or using the word of righteousness. And of course, this word of righteousness being centrally the gospel of Christ. All right, well, anyway, back to uh, the thrust and theme here of the author himself, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And again, so this is going to be applying the word of God, applying the principles of God to uh, the chaotic, um, there it is, to the, uh, to the, the chaos and confusion of the world such that we can, as Christians, distinguish good from evil, God's will from not God's will, etc. Um, does this, does this somehow contradict the principle of sola scriptura? No, rather this is the application of sola scriptura. Okay. Um, God's word doesn't speak to any number of specific circumstances or situations but it does give us general principles by which we can seek to discern what is good or what is evil in each case, in each circumstance. So that's what we're to do, and that's, the, that's for all of us who are mature. Now, you know, as St. Paul would say, take care um, if, you, if you stand, lest you fall. So, you know, don't break your arm, you know, patting yourself on the back as to how mature you are. You might by that very act, show yourself to be immature. So this is a kind of humility where we don't assume that we're mature. We don't assume that we know all there is to know. We don't assume our skill in handling the word of righteousness and discerning um, good and evil, but we humbly submit ourselves to the word of God as students um, of the teacher, as servants of the master, and then seek to be skilled in his word and skilled in distinguishing good from evil. So far, so good? Okay. And here you can see how artificial the chapter break is. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What's he saying here? You should already know this stuff. <laughs> Basically, that's what he's saying. Yeah, we're, we want to leave behind the fundamental doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Okay, so we don't need to lay again the foundation of repentance. You all know what it is to repent, to turn away from dead works. Here in view, sins, but you know, it could be good works that aren't good works. Um, it could be uh, even specifically, you know, some of the ceremonial requirements of the law that have since been abrogated and put away. Um, that that could constitute a kind of dead work. Okay, but the point is we're turning away from these dead works to Christ who lives and to living works. All right, but we're also putting away faith toward God. We already get that. Trust in God, in Christ Jesus. Instruction about washings. Now, this is like the language of baptism, but it's not limited to baptism. Um, in fact, you can see in the study note, it points you to Mark 7, 3 through 4, where it talks about the washing of cups and dishes and couches and this kind of thing. So what's in view here probably is more like ceremonial washings than baptism per se. 
And um, you know, I, I don't think the I don't think the author of Hebrews is saying, look, there's no time or place to study these things or learn about these things. Like it's forbidden to you. You're supposed to be mature. I don't think that's his point because, in many cases, the New Testament scriptures themselves talk about um, fundamental doctrine of Christ, um, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, etc. And then certainly baptism you find all over the place. So I think the author of Hebrews is saying, know these things, absorb these things, but then don't think that's all there is for you. Don't, um, you know, gosh, wasn't, uh, wasn't Judaism so much more complex and detailed? And we had our rabbis and our midrashes and our speculations and our genealogies and our myths. And um, this is all so simple. It's too simple. It's childish. And then you can kind of see his rhetoric. You, you folks are the ones who are children. Uh, you're the ones that are only fit, you know, for milk rather than solid food. We can move on to solid food and we should move on to solid food. That seems to be the rhetorical thrust at work here. Now, we did kind of pick up, um, you know, you've got this elementary doctrine of Christ. If you will, that's kind of one. Repentance from dead works, two, faith toward God, three, instruction about washings, four, and then the laying on of hands, five. Now, this is often um, affiliated with baptism, and the study note points this out, liturgical action that likely accompanied baptismal prayers. It's nowhere a a command or requirement. Um, And then another alternative is you might see here you know, like the doctrine of ordination or something like that going on. Sometimes the, like in Paul's letter to the, well, his pastoral epistles, you see this language of not be swift in, lay, in the laying on of hands, lest you become a partaker of other men's sins. That's the idea of not ordaining um, people who are, who are novices in the faith and are unknown to the bishop. All right, so be that as it may, a little ambiguous, but laying on of hands constitutes the fifth, if I've kept my numbers straight, and then the resurrection of the dead, sixth, and the and the eternal judgment, seventh. But you can just, very broadly, generically speaking, it's almost like a little creed, right? You're supposed to have the creedal faith absorbed. Okay. So then verse 3, and this we will do, what will we do? Chapter 6, verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary, etc., etc. So, um, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. 
All right, and then what follows next is his analogy for how this works. But let's go ahead and see what it is that he's saying and just take a little deeper analysis here. So um, Luther, obviously, no secret, doesn't like this part, and a lot of folks don't like this part. And again, if you kind of study the canon and you know how fluid it is, there's a time and a place for a doctor of the church to say, yeah, well, I'm not convinced that this is in keeping with the doctrine of the rest of the apostolic scriptures. And you can have that kind of academic level debate. Now, that's not really going to be my approach, um, even though I think that that debate's fine to have and interesting to have. That's not really going to be my approach as a pastor. My approach as a pastor is I don't really see anything wrong with this section. I think that, again, especially properly understood in terms of the author's rhetoric, um, it makes perfect sense what he's saying. It's something that I would say to someone who is apostatizing <laughs> or about to. Um, don't think you can apostatize and come back. It doesn't work that way. Isn't that what you would say to somebody? Go ahead and try it, then you can come back. No doubt. If you change your mind, the door's always open. Is that good rhetoric? Is that good pastoral care? I don't think so. So I don't really fault this guy at all for what he's doing or saying here um, in terms of his rhetoric and the intent of what he's doing. And I think that that actually might be a more objective read than as if he were self-aware um, of, of himself writing some sort of dogmatics text. Here, let me give you the, the dogma of apostasy and the fact that what is this? The opposite of once saved, always saved. So you can be saved and then you fall away, and then and then once you've fallen away, you're always falling away. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this. So it is impossible, he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now, enlightened can be generic. Receive the gospel, the light of Christ, and been so enlightened. Um, but even very early in the early church. Um, Justin Martyr, for example, talks about baptism as enlightenment. So it's not out of the question that this enlightenment, this enlightenment, being enlightened, is a reference to being baptized. And that is um, also kind of compelling based on what comes next, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now again, can this be just generally understood as taste and see that the Lord is good, or Jesus as the bread from heaven, kind of abstractly? I'm sure, but why not see this as a reference to the heavenly gift, the sacrament of the altar? And then it kind of makes sense to read enlightened as a, as a reference to baptism and tasting of the heavenly gift as a reference to the sacrament, who have partaken of the full sacramental life of the church and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. One of those powers of the age to come. Well, we see some of that in the um, uh, the Pentecostal gifts given at Pentecost to the first century church. But, you know, even more fundamentally, we see that, of course, in the resurrection of Jesus. Anyway, once you've had the fullness of the Christian faith, he says, it is impossible in the case of those who have and then um, fallen away. Those who have done all these things, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Okay. Why? Why is this impossible? 
since, he writes, so here's the basis of his argument, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right. Is this a casual falling away? No, it doesn't seem to be a casual falling away. This isn't like you go off to college and forget to go to church, and then you kind of forget to live like a Christian, and then you kind of forget to be a Christian, and then all of a sudden, by the power of God's Word and Spirit, you're awakened to your state of apostasy, and you come back. That doesn't seem to be what's being described here. What seems to be being described here is rather knowingly, willfully, with full cognizance, turning away from Christ such that your act of apostasy could be said to be crucifying again the Son of God. Knowing, willing, etc. And doing this to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Now, before we, uh, before I pause and see if you agree with the author of Hebrews or seeing what questions or concerns you might have, he's going to build his case just a little more and he's going to use an analogy over on verse 7. So let's get the fullness of his argument and then we can pause and see if you, if you like it, don't like it, if you have questions or confusions. Verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. All right, what's the, what's the idea here? The rain comes and causes the land to be fruitful. This is the rain, we might say, is the word of God, the gospel of Christ, coming and making us alive and fruitful. But if it, what, the earth that receives the rain, bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. All right, so what happens in the first case? The rain comes and the land grows good crop. In the second case, the rain comes and the land bears thorn and thistle. Okay, so think about this in terms of the dynamic of the gospel. The gospel comes, you hear it, you receive it with joy, you're fruitful. All right, but what if your apostasy is the kind of apostasy where when you hear the gospel, instead of creating fruitfulness in it, it's the very thing that creates thorn and thistle in you. You knowingly, willingly hate and despise Christ who died for you, and you hate the preaching of Christ crucified, and you hate the preaching of the forgiveness of your sins, and when you hear it, you bristle up with thorn and thistle. Can such a person in that state be saved? No. How are you going to be saved? It's the very preaching of the gospel that would save you, and it's the very preaching of the gospel that causes you to have the exact opposite reaction, bristling and despising. Now, this is different than just a pagan hearing the gospel and for the first time or 
for the 70th time, but having not been enlightened, having not tasted of the heavenly gifts, having not become a partaker in the Holy Spirit and all these things. So we're not talking about just general rejection of the gospel. That's not what we're talking about. A pagan may indeed bristle against these things, or think of a Jew that's heard the gospel of Christ Jesus but rejects that Jesus is the Messiah, and they may bristle against these things, like St. Paul did, for example. Remember, even going so far as to hold the jackets of those who were stoning um, Stephen. Okay, so what we're talking about here is not just rejection of the gospel, but it's an intimate knowledge of the gospel, participation in the gospel, such that you know it, you've embraced the fullness of it. It's not ignorance, it's not weakness, it's not you've slowly drawn away. You know it, and it's that very thing that you despise, reject, and hate. Can you come back? No, it's that very thing that converts you. It's not that God's forbidding it. It's that we're simply identifying the nature of this apostasy, the psychology of this apostasy, that the very thing that that would convert you is the very thing that you've come not only to know, but to now hate. You've not only said, well, Christ died for me, you know, to hell with Christ, crucify him again. Then how are you going to come, then how is someone going to evangelize you by saying Christ died for you? Say, let him die for me again. Let him die for everyone again. Let him die, period. Okay, so you can see then this spiritual condition to which the author of Hebrews is speaking. We know that, um, we know that, uh, there are folks that turn their back on Christ and come back. Okay. Who would be chief in our minds as we approach Holy Week and think of someone who turned his back on Christ and was returned to the faith? Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And indeed he does. And yet Peter is restored. So we have a kind of apostasy and a coming back from that apostasy. What might be an Old Testament example of a kind of apostasy and coming back from apostasy? David. Yeah, because not only does he sin with Bathsheba, but then he continues to cover up his tracks over and over, even murder, etc., um, to the point where he doesn't even recognize his sin. And uh, remember when uh, the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells the little parable about the sheep and everything else, and David condemns himself without even seeing himself in the parable, and condemns himself because that's the right and just thing. <laughs> in other words, preaching to himself, you are condemned. Of course, Nathan says, you are the man. All right, so in these examples, we see apostasy. Does David come back? Yeah, Psalm 51 is his psalm of uh, praying repentance for that specific episode in his life. All right, so we know that there is apostasy you can come back from, but is there a kind of apostasy you can't come back from? Yeah, and that's what they... Shipwrecked your faith. Shipwrecked your faith, right. Um, Yeah, Uh, who is he talking about there? Um, yeah, and he mentions two guys there. I can't remember. Um, do you know off the top of your head? It's right on the tip of my brain. If I had a half hour more sleep last night, <laughs> I'd know. Anyway, um, yeah. So, so you can shipwreck your faith. All right. Jesus talks about um, Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, those who believe for a little while, and then fall away. Uh, we have those, uh, something like Hymenaeus and Alexander, or something like that, isn't it? My sleep-deprived brain is... 
opening itself to scorn and mockery by even taking a guess. Okay, so the question isn't, can you fall away from the faith? The biblical answer is, yes. Under some circumstances of falling away, can you be brought back into the faith? The biblical answer is, yes. Under some circumstances, is the nature of apostasy such that you cannot be brought back to the faith? The biblical answer, according to Hebrews, is yes. Is it because of some impossibility in God? No. It's because the very thing that God will use to save you is the very thing that's known and rejected. Um, kind of a dumb analogy, but it illustrates the point. Imagine a lifeguard. And the lifeguard spends 30 years rescuing people. He knows everything there is to know about lifeguarding, everything there is to know about the equipment, and he's a master of the life preserver. Okay? And he finds himself in a, in a storm out in the seas, and someone comes with a life preserver and wraps it around him, and he's saved, and he's in the life preserver, and he's going and says, you know what? I'm, I think I'm better off on my own than being towed in by this life preserver in this boat, but he knows full well that if he takes the life preserver off of him and casts it away with the wind and the waves and the storm being as it is, the, the boat will never get back to him in time. So he knowingly, willingly takes the life preserver off and says, to hell with that. And even though everyone's screaming, hey, don't do that! Keep it on! Quick, he's taking it off. Throw it back. That's the very thing he despises. The very thing he says, no, absolutely not. Maybe it floats near him and he pushes it away again. Okay, so can such a man be saved from the water? No, not if he doesn't want to be. And that's exactly the point. So the, um, the articulation here of the rain falling, instead of creating blessing, it immediately causes the land to bristle up in rejection, and cursedness, and waste. Um, Hymenaeus and Alexander, is that what I said? Okay. Good. Good. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. What if then, this is a psychotic episode momentarily? Yes, okay, so that's a great question. What if there's a psychotic episode and someone denies the faith? Um, Okay, while we commend all people into the hands of God, and while we don't make personal judgments about was this person ultimately saved or not, um, we can, as a generality, say that God knows full well that that's an exception. And that's a, so Luther will even talk about um, a spiritual episode where someone goes spiritually psychotic or psychologically psychotic or something and ends up denying the faith. Um, that they're not necessarily damned because, you know, it's, it, Luther likens it to a thief coming up and jumping you and um, robbing all your stuff. It happens temporarily. It happens against your will. You're passive in that experience. Um, so we have reason to believe, to hope anyway that such a person wouldn't be damned, that God would look upon that and sustain faith in the inner man. Um, and then I've seen too pastorally, you know, when people suffer from dementia, a lifelong Christian who is at the Lord's Supper every single week and confessing the faith every chance they get, and then dementia kicks in, and they're saying all kinds of Christian and unchristian un and unbelieving things. Do I, as a pastor, necessarily assume, well, they must be damned? 
No, I assume that this is a mental illness and a spiritual plague that's come upon them, and I, I minister still to the inner man in the hope that indeed there's faith sustained in there by God, and whatever the brain and mouth are doing is disconnected from the soul. And so that's the way we hope and the way we proceed in those instances. I was going to say that kind of re- what your remarks are reminds me of uh, Karl Marx and John Egler, those kind of people. I'm getting nervous. What? Do you, <laughs> those aren't people I want to be. Con- oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I thought you were comparing me to what they were saying. No, no, like, the, <laughs> no, those are the two. I remember they were of the faith, and both yeah. Karl Marx and Egler yeah. denying up to their deathbeds. Yeah, when some, and, and I mean, I. Yeah, it's just not hard for you to imagine and or plug in either personal people you know or um, uh, famous people like this who it's not ignorance of Christianity, it's not slow slipping away, it's not... I mean, there's all kinds of circumstances in which one can be recovered um, and be brought back into the faith. But there, there is a certain category of apostasy that denies the very means by which you would ever be returned to the faith. So um, that's why I think uh, that's what I think the author of Hebrews is asserting, and and I actually I've got no personal problem with that. I don't see how that um, really. I think there's a problem if you see this as some kind of universal, but again, I don't think that that's what he's asserting. That this is a universal. I think he's got specific circumstances in mind. Again, the nature of this apostasy in his mind is that you are re-crucifying Christ. You hate and despise the very thing that. The very one and the very means by which that one saved you. How are you going to be converted from that? Okay, let's pause and uh, I see a hand or two or a puzzled expression or two. Let's, let's have your thoughts. I'm all the way in the back. Would it be fair to contrast or bring into the situation Romans eight thirty eight uh, nothing shall separate us from the love of God uh, because uh, that's true at the same time so it it must be contingent on the the person if you're wrestling with Satan and you're losing and you're having trouble but you're wrestling and struggling and 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 that type of thing, I think you need to lean on a verse like that, that nothing's going to separate us uh, from the love of God, as opposed to, like you said, you know, a ju- just totally hardened person that just rejects it outright instantly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the scriptures are, as much as I'm a dogmatician and love dogmatics and know that they have a place in the church, the scriptures just aren't dogmatics textbooks. Their word of God to man, and to man in particular circumstances. Um, to the man who is fearful, or woman, that is fearful that they've apostatized in this way, guess what? You wouldn't be fearful if you had. You would know you had, and you would care less, and you would stake your life and soul and everything on the fact that you're right, and Christ and his church are wrong. That's the nature of this, okay? So this isn't a sin that a Christian falls into and just like, oh gosh, I wish I could get out. I can't believe I did this. The fact that you can't believe you did this and you want to get out or you already are out 
means you haven't done it, right? The dynamic is such of this that there's no coming back. That's the very nature of what he's defining. Now, to your point, and it's a great point, um, where, where Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome that, you know, nothing, not life or death, not anything, and, and heaven, earth, or anything else can take us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's exactly what we all need to hear to have our faith strengthened. Um, nonetheless, and this just isn't to what Paul's talking about at all, I mean, wouldn't you say that you, if you turned your back on, on God, if you did that, right, um, then yeah, you, those promises of God are true insofar as they are, but you render them null and void because you reject him and call him a liar, right? But that's just not the circumstance into which Paul is speaking. Yeah. So when we see the weakness of our faith and the unbelief in our hearts and the ungodliness, we turn to those comforting words of St. Paul that talk about God's love and God's forgiveness and the perfect faithfulness of Christ Jesus and how nothing will snatch us out of his hands, right? But if I'm thinking about, if I, I mean, imagine, imagine me as a pastor, knowing what I know, having experienced what I've experienced. Um, imagine me thinking like this. Um, I hate Christ, I hate his gospel, and I'm off uh, to live whatever life I want to live. Or I'm off to join another religion. How are you going to convert me? You're going to do law and gospel to me? I'd be like, oh, oh, is this the law? Is this the part where I repent? Oh, is this the gospel? Is this the part where I'm supposed to be converted? I reject both of those. I know all your games, I know all your playbook, I know it all, and I reject it all. How are you going to save me? You're not going to save me. You're going to walk away. Um, this is very much analogous, by the way, to at the end of um, John's epistle. Uh, these are interrelated texts. At the end of John's epistle, he says, As to those um, committing a sin unto death, I say you ought not pray for those. How are you going to pray for someone who's in the circumstances I just described? Dear God, please convert Pastor Rody. Pastor Rody despises God and despises the very means by which God would convert me. There's, how are you even going to pray for that? You can't even pray for that. We're not saying the sin or apostasy is so great that Christ didn't die for it on the cross. No, he did. He died for all sins. There's no sin so great that it's outside of the cross. It's the spiritual dynamic at play prevents one from being from coming back, from being converted again, because they re they know and deny and reject the very means by which they would be brought back in. You see how that works? It makes no sense to pray to God, because God already wills and desires that they would be saved, that they would come back. He's already doing his law and gospel in full force and everything else, but the nature of that person's soul is like that soil that can do nothing but bear thorn and briar. The nature of that person's soul is such that they can do nothing but reject God. So what are you going to do? Pray for that person? Dear God, please convert that person. How would that hypothetical conversation go? Yeah, I would love to. And I'm trying, and I would. But they know my gospel, and they reject and despise my gospel, and this is the means by which I would save them. So don't lay that on God. That would be a mistake. Lay that on the person, you see. All right, so that's, um, I don't know, that's a way of kind of tying in John's theology. I'm not sure John's doing the identical thing that the author of Hebrews is doing, but very frequently in these conversations, both of those texts are kind of helpful to bounce off of each other. Uh, I think it's First John chapter 5, the very end of the book, and then Hebrews chapter 6. Yeah, I see a hand waving desperately in the background. Yeah, I was thinking about that's all good about the person who rejects the gospel. 
But as we were talking in Sunday school, if you have another God, like say, for instance, you have your family at sport games every Sunday morning and you neglect to raise your children in the church. Mm. And you say, well, I did everything. Adam confirmed I did this, I did that. And um, God will save us because God is good. But then the minute, that's the guy with the life raft. I'm so capable. Mm -hmm. I I don't need the life raft. Mm -hmm. But then something tragic happens. What's the first thing the person does? Doesn't look to the game. He looks to God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like they need the tragedy or the sickness to bring them back in focus. Mm -hmm. And I I think if you talk to a person like that, you're going to get a scornful remark. Yeah. Because I've tried. (laughs) They don't care. Yeah. I think that this, this text is descriptive of a certain kind of apostasy. And I think insofar as we're describing that kind of apostasy, what he's saying is exactly right. It, it, what we also want to say is that not every kind of apostasy is like the kind he's describing. And we've already given biblical examples. We can think of personal examples. Um, so can you come back from apostasy? Yes, unless it's of the sort that the author of Hebrews is describing, where you knowingly, willingly reject the very means by which you would be saved. You re-crucify Christ and would gladly re-crucify Christ. I'm sorry? Case I'm talking about. They don't openly reject Christ. Mm. It's just that they don't embrace it. They don't... Do they count they themselves as a Christian? Yes. And, okay, so help me understand the nature um, without getting into any specific personal detail, just very generic contours of the spiritual condition. So this this person believes themselves to be a Christian but wants nothing to do with Christianity? Yeah, the Unnecessary. Yeah, I don't know that I would describe that as apostasy. I would describe that as a, you know, obviously a very unhealthy spiritual condition. Um, but I'm not sure I'd describe that as apostasy. They haven't turned their back on Christ as such. They've written off his church, which is a mistake and a grave kind of sin. But that, but there are grave sins that people fall into um, on account of what they've experienced and what's been done to them. And even though it would be wrong and it would be sin and they should repent of that, it doesn't, by you know felicitous inconsistency, it doesn't negate the faith that they have in Christ despite all things. They do. I think a person like that may well create apostasy in their progeny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the problem. That's a big problem. If you're a Christian in your heart and not in any of your actions, what are your progeny going to see? Just your actions, not your heart. And everyone else. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the grave nature of a Christian who's in that state. It's a spiritually uh, terrible state to be in. And, and even kind of how selfish of like, well, I'm saved. Okay, do you, not, do you not care about the body of Christ? Do you not care about the other members? Do you not care about the people around you? Do you not care about living? In, in, do you not care about Jesus enough to all you want from him is salvation and then he can go to hell? I mean, you know, it's a very grave spiritual uh, state to be in. I don't want to minimize that. But it seems to fall short of apostasy. Uh-huh. And probably some of that could be worked through and worked out depending upon the person's age and demeanor. 
All right, well, thank you for that. Any other thoughts or comments on this section? All right, let's motor along then. So I know it's a challenging one, obviously, uh, but I, I don't mind it, at least as uh, insofar as it goes. All right, chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. All right, there's this dynamic, far be it from you. I don't think any of you have fallen into this. I don't want any of you to fall into this, right? In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. I mean, also, what does this sound like in Lutheran terms? Doesn't this just sound like a strict preaching of the law against apostasy and then followed up by, a go by the gospel of salvation? I, I think that's what he's doing. For God is not unjust. Boy, maybe we have to say full stop in our day and age. But God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So to what kind of spiritual condition would he be speaking these words? The spiritual condition would be something like, God doesn't see, or if he sees, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the danger I'm in or the danger I'm putting my family in, or the work and the suffering and the affliction and the labor of being a Christian in this context. He doesn't see, he doesn't care, he doesn't value it. And so what is, the, what is again, the author of Hebrews saying? God's not unjust. He sees and he will indeed reward. He's not going to overlook your work. He's not going to overlook the love that you've shown his saints in his name. So, so put your faith in the fact that God is just and will repay you for your sufferings, will reward you for your sufferings. And here we see the proper place and the necessity of talking about rewards for Christians in this life and in that which is to come. The promise of rewards is precisely to keep us faithful in our vocations, to show us that God is just. He will reward. It is worth it. And it's not some this crass thing like, okay, well, I'm keeping track and I expect 37 merit badges from Jesus when I arrive into heaven. No, that's not the point. The point is, the devil will attack us so that we go, it's all worthless. It's all spitting in the wind. Not a darn thing I've done makes any bit of difference. The world is entirely corrupt and evil, and all everything I've tried to do to push against that has failed, and it's worthless. God hasn't blessed it. He won't bless it. I should just give up. The author of Hebrews is going, you're crazy. God sees everything that you do. He's not unjust, and he will reward you. Be steadfast. Be encouraged. You're doing the work of the Lord. Not only are you you're loving his saints, his holy ones, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You're loving them, and in so do, far, insofar as you are, and in so doing, you are loving his name and honoring him. This is where Jesus says, not even a cup of cold water given to a little child in my name will go without its reward. See, it's not this meritorious nastiness. We don't have to swing into that to believe in rewards in heaven. What's, what's the opposite? If, if that's the danger, is that we you know, present God a bill. <laughs> if that's one danger, what's the other danger? That we fall into a sort of Christian nihilism. Nothing matters. All is despair. God will reward or not reward. What I do or don't do doesn't matter. Faithfulness in my vocation is of no effect one way or the other. 
Okay, those would be the two, those would be the two errors and opposite errors, right? One, you present God with a bill, and the other, you say, well, it's all worthless in God's sight. Both of those are just errors. The truth is right in the middle. God is gracious. Not, not based on merit or worthiness. God is gracious, but He promises to reward. Everything we do in our lives as Christians has value in His sight. And we will not lose our reward. So be steadfast and be encouraged and live every single day of your life as if it has profound meaning and impact. Even if we don't see it with our eyes, know that it that does in the eyes of God. Okay, And that's the encouragement, to be Christians in an environment that's hostile to Christianity. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So this is, this is the goal. Don't apostatize. Don't fall into despair. But rather have earnestness and have full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you can be saved, but be sluggish. How about if you save, be saved and not be sluggish? <laughs> Wouldn't that be better? Yeah, that'd be better. That's what he's advocating for. Okay, and so, um, you know, this isn't, we, we should say here too, like, biblically and, and in terms of the, the tradition of the church up into the present, this is, this is vocational. What is your station in life? To what has God called you? It doesn't mean you got to run out and start a coffee ministry or a you know, glossy pamphlet ministry or whatever you want to do in order to really be doing the work of God. No, you're serving the saints. You're a Christian. You're serving the body of Christ at church. You're called to your various callings, your vocations, your stations in life as father and mother, as child, as wife or husband, as worker or employer. Okay, so don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those through who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who are those? The saints. Yeah, be imitators of the saints. Now he's going to he's going to give us a whole long list of biblical saints, the great cloud of witnesses, the so-called hall of faith. That's all coming. So we have the biblical saints in mind. Nothing wrong at all with seeing, um, for example, Saint Paul, who says, "Be imitators of." Me. And uh, so also, I, there's no problem whatsoever with looking at any saint in the 2,000-year history of the church and admiring them for what they've done. We admire Augustine for repenting of his free will theology and battling Pelagius. Be an imitator of that. We admire Luther for making his stand in the, in the medieval period, in the Reformation, shining light on, on salvation, the nature of justification by faith apart from works. Um, I take, you know, I, I want to imitate those fathers who went before us even in, in the past generation and fought the fight for the Bible. The Bible is God's Word. It doesn't just contain God's Word. It is God's Word. And who fought against the incursion of Pentecostalism and all of that nonsense that so changes our epistemological framework to where our faith is no longer based on God's Word, but our faith is based on whatever pastor so-and-so or brother so-and-so just happened to receive from the Spirit. They fought these fights, and we want to be imitators in that. We want to be imitators of, um, you know, 
the little old lady who does nothing but drags herself to church every week, but she does that. And you think of the labor that it takes for her to just show up for the sake of the saints, to be near Jesus and to give a good example for the saints and encourage them and care for them and allow herself to be cared for. What an example. Think of the, the widow that Jesus pointed out to his disciples who drops her nothing, her half a penny into the treasury box. And he goes, look at that. There's nothing at all wrong with looking at the saints and trying to imitate them in their saintly acts. And that's what the author of Hebrews is commending here. Um, it's why in the, in the Lutheran church we have a rich history of uh, commemorating saints' days. In fact, today is St. Patrick's Day, I think. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, this is, this is great encouragement. And, you know, we do this all the time anyway. I was in- listening to a really interesting interview talking about um, con- contrasting uh, how children in the, at various points in the church's life were raised in contrast to how children are raised today. Who are, and it kind of hits home to me because I'm a father of young children, but who are our children's heroes? Sports figures. That's probably the biggest. Celebrities, pop stars. Yep, music, musicians, cartoons, various cartoons. That's their heroes. Okay, How, at various times in the in the age of the church, who are the kids' heroes? The saints, biblical saints, ancient saints, contemporary saints. These are the people we aspire to. And now you can even, you can even kind of see how Paul's language of, of the saint as athlete, running the race, wrestling, boxing, fighting, waging war. Um, these are the saints to which we look and aspire to be. So we want, you know, we want to do that again and we want to inspire our children that the true heroes are the saints of which Christ Jesus is chief and preeminent and the center and always there. But we also look to these saints in Christ, made holy by him, who hung on to their faith, who um, did fantastic things, who, when they sinned and fell, returned and received forgiveness, who were kind and merciful to those who sinned against them, who were long-suffering and bearing the persecutions and hatred of the world, these are the saints and the virtues we want to champion and cultivate and lift our minds to and lift the minds of our children to. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that takes away from Christ in doing that. Rather, the proper way is that we see Christ's work in their lives, in and through them, covering their sins, strengthening them, lifting them when they fall, so that through the saints we begin to see ourselves and we see those virtues we want to emulate. And we see the grace of God when they fall, and we can see then when we fall, there's grace of God for us too, so we don't fall into despair or unbelief. All right, well, that's a little sermonette there for you, but, um, you know, this is important. It's why, it's why really truthfully, I think in the 20, late 20th and 21st century, there's kind of been a resurgence of an, att- of attention given to the saints in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, more and more emphasis put on this. And we shouldn't be worried about that as long as Christ remains at the center of those saints' lives and the center of our piety. Why not celebrate their virtues just as the author of Hebrews expresses here? Um, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Love it. Love it. 
All right, so that's what he wants. Don't apostatize. Don't cut yourselves off. Don't get in a place where you can't come back. But rather, trust in God who is just, who will indeed reward your work. He sees your work. He sees your labors. He sees your afflictions. He sees your love for the saints and your service of him and his church. He sees all of it. He's paying attention to all of it. He loves all of it. Be strengthened in it and be strengthened by the, your fellow workers who are with you now, doing, going through the same thing and those who have come before. Don't be sluggish, but be steadfast and be inspired. All right, now we go into this uh, example of Abraham a little bit here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. I love this. God swore an oath. You know, when man swears, he always swears by something above him. And Jesus, in his usual hyperbolic way, is like, why swear at all? <laughs> Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with swearing. There's nothing inherently wrong with swearing. Um, God himself swears. So swearing is always situationally based as to whether it's sinful or virtuous. And here God himself swears, which is just such a remarkable thing. Do you think he's doing this for himself? You think he needs to do this to like muster up within himself? <laughs> the, the fact that he's, no, he does this solely and entirely for us. This is such a beautiful thing because it shows the, the humble heart of God. You know, when Jesus... Um, speaks of himself as being meek and of lowly heart. It's a reflection of God the Father. And you can see God the Father's meekness and his lowliness of, of heart when he doesn't just say it and then say, well, I'm God. But he'll actually swear an oath, which is the most we can ever do to confirm anything. He will actually condescend to do that so that we will be absolutely certain in him. It's beautiful. Shows us the meek and humble heart of our God and Father, the meek and humble heart of Jesus. So, um, he had no one greater by whom to swear, yet he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. He spoke these promises to Abraham. Now again, what did we see in verse 12? Um, those who through faith and patience, and that's exactly what Abraham exhibits. That's why despite all his faults and sins and everything else, if you summarized Abraham's life, you would say faith and patience. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. How long did Abraham have to wait? So darn long. Even for Isaac, the son to come. So darn long that finally they even, in sin, I think, concocted this plan, trying to force God's hand um, with, uh, who was it, Rahab? And, Ish and Ishmael came about. Do I have the right names there? I always get confused back there. What is it? Hagar, that's it. Hagar and Ishmael. Sorry, I always get confused with those names. Yeah, hey, they try to force the issue. Remember with Hagar and, and uh, then Ishmael results and God says, no, no, it's going to be the son of my promise. It's going to be of your wife, Sarah. Okay, so how long did he have to wait for Isaac to come? A long time. And then how long did he have to wait for that fruitfulness to show itself forth? A long time. So Abraham having waited, um, thus Abraham having waited patiently obtained the promise. And then back to this oath. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. We're so lost and cynical and in darkness these days that people swear an oath on the Bible and then lie in the next breath. I've seen that. Um, but here, why, why, would you, why would you swear an oath, specifically like on the Bible or to God or something? As God is my witness, as God is my judge, when I'm telling you it's the truth. There's a place for this. 
It's just not to do so frivolously. All right, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. Now, this is the promise in Abraham. So this is the promise of the Messiah. We're talking here with, when we're talking about Abraham, and we're talking about, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Ultimately, we're talking about the sons of Abraham through faith, not through the flesh. So keep that in mind too. That's all this emphasis on the promise and faith in the promise. Heirs of Abraham by faith, not by the flesh. So um, he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Okay, so what two things do we have? We have God who cannot lie, and then we have his oath. At least that's as I'm counting it. If you see something else there, let me know. But those seem to be the two things. God who does not lie and his oath. You might argue that it's God who does not lie and his oath as one unit, and then another unit would be kind of this, um, the unchangeable character of his purpose which we would mistake as like fate or destiny or something like that. No, not quite. That's a really truncated and distorted view. But the unchangeable character of his purpose. That's kind of like he elected you before the foundation of the world. <laughs> so we've got this, this twofold testimony of God that then encourages us to hold fast to the hope set before us so that, again, we don't apostatize. That's the point. But rather, like Abraham, endure through faith and patience and inherit the promises, even if they are long in coming. Nonetheless, we patiently wait and obtain the promise in due time. Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves at all, but of course, you know, the author of Hebrews, such a complex thinker, complex writer. Um, later on, he's going to say these died having not received the promise. And so we're going to reflect on the ways in which the promise was fulfilled to Abraham and the way in which it was not. The way in which God's promises are fulfilled to us and the way in which they are not. With the point being that all the promises of God are not finally fulfilled until the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of our bodies, the new heavens and the new earth. Then in that day will Abraham, in fact, inherit the land and inherit progeny that outnumber the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And that will be us. We'll be there. And we too will have inherited. All right, so let us remain steadfast in Christ Jesus. And uh, let's close up there. We'll pick up at the end of chapter 6 next week. The Lord be with you.